Great news. We might not see them for a while, but we will be reunited in this place we call heaven. So that's what we're going to jump right back. See that transition? Jump right back into it. Come on. Okay. And uh, we've been going through this series on heaven, and we've been looking at the five W's and one H. We're sitting right there on the where and the how. We've put those together because I think they're interrelated. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And the reason that we're talking about heaven, uh, if you're new with us or, or just as a reminder, is that I think that there's a problem within the church. And you could say just within the society as a whole. We don't talk enough about heaven. And so I think we forget that it's the real hope that energizes us for life now. Uh, I was, as you know, I've been listening to some podcasts lately, and I came across this other podcast called Life After. And so, of course, I'm doing this series, and it catches my eye. And so I listened to, to part of the first episode, and it's about a man named Ross who continues a relationship with his deceased wife through an online interface um, that takes all of her past voice messages and begins to create sort of an online personality based on, with her real voice. Um, if, if you've ever seen the TV show Black Mirror, uh, there's also an episode with the same premise. So it's interesting, right? That in our culture everywhere, people are asking this question, well, what about life after? And two popular uh, mass media out, uh, avenues are talking about this idea of continuing a relationship uh, with a deceased loved one through their online voice messages. Interesting, right? So, when this character Ross first uh, realizes that his wife is actually talking back to him, this is, this is what happens. Ross asks this voice, his wife's voice, this, tell me where you are, and I'll be there. The deceased wife responds saying this, I am nowhere. I died, remember? I live here. I live on Voice Tree, which is the messaging service. I live on your phone. This is what I am now. I just thought, that's the hope. That's the hope that a lot of people in our city and in our society, that's what they live in. Just the memories or the recorded voicemails or the recorded videos or the pictures. But that's not the Christian hope. That's not the hope of heaven that we sing about, that we read about. That's not the promises that God gives to us, that Jesus declares to us. And so we've been looking at this place called heaven and trying to get our handle on it. Because oftentimes I think we misunderstand it. And so here's what we've already said about heaven. We said that God has a plan for all things, for all of history, for all of time, for, for all of space. And it includes this place called heaven. And heaven had to be a part of the plan because his greatest desire is to live with his people in the physical world that he's created. But the problem is this can't happen because of this thing called sin. This thing that corrupts us and corrupts all the earth. And so, because this is his greatest desire to be with us, he has to create a new earth that's free of corruption, free from the disease we call sin, and every kind of cancer on his good creation. 
So last week, we said that God will do this. He will create this heaven in three winds. We said it starts right now in life now. Heaven happens here in part through the Spirit of God that comes to live inside those who trust Jesus by faith. And then it happens in life after death. We die and we go to this place called the intermediate heaven where we will be face to face in the direct presence of Jesus and God. But that's not our final destination because the third when happens right here in life after, life after death. And what we've called the eternal heaven or the new creation. So today I want to discuss how this future and final heaven will become and how it's necessarily related to the question of where it will come. So that's what we're going to look at today. If you were with us last week, or, or if you listened online, we spoke about Jesus' ascension. We said it's, it's, it's vital that we understand this theology of the ascension of Jesus. And, and the ascension of Jesus is a, is a separate act from the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus lived on earth, he died on the cross, he was buried in the grave, he rose from the grave, he appeared to his disciples and as many as 500 more for 40 days, and then it says he ascended into heaven. And we said last week that, it, that if we, we don't understand the ascension, it sort of messes everything else up. We might even begin to say things or to believe things like Jesus' ascension is that he evaporates into everywhere and into the hearts of his people, the church. Maybe, maybe you've sort of believed that. But that's actually not what the ascension teaches. Because if we believe that Jesus sort of just evaporates and becomes a part of everything, including his people, the church, then what we have to say is that Jesus is the church, right? Well, this creates huge problems because the church is never meant to live up to that standard. Because if we begin to identify Jesus with the church, if we identify its structures and its leadership, its liturgy, its buildings with Jesus, then what happens is that we get this really weird picture of what Jesus is like. On the one hand, you get a misunderstanding for really the depth of love, the holiness of Jesus. And on the other hand, you'll get despair because you'll realize that it's not working, that the church isn't bringing the kingdom. So N.T. Wright says this, Only when we grasp firmly that the church is not Jesus and Jesus is not the church, only when we grasp, in other words, the truth of the ascension, that Jesus is right now in his heavenly body in the intermediate heaven, that he is present with us, yes, by the Spirit, that he, yes, is Lord over this world, but that he is also strangely absent, strangely other, strangely different from us. Only then are we rescued from both hollow triumphalism and shallow despair. What he's saying is that in the history of the church, we've thought, the church is Jesus, so if the church just conquers the world, then Jesus conquers the world. Well, what we've seen is that's not true. And we get a very distorted view of Christianity and of the gospel and of Jesus. Or we get this shallow despair because we realize that it just 
won't ever work. It won't ever happen. And that really, Jesus isn't here. Now, when we properly understand the ascension, that Jesus died, rose, appeared to many, and then ascended into the, into the intermediate heaven, when we grasp that and celebrate that, that Jesus has gone ahead of us into God's space, into God's new world, that he's at God the Father's right hand, then we can start to understand world history. Then we can start to understand and be equipped for the task of justice and reconciliation in this present place and be rescued from any attempts that are often made to find alternative, alternative mediators. Mediators like politicians or pastors or priests or popes or saints or the church itself. So, get the ascension right. So Jesus went and is now fully in the presence of God in the intermediate heaven, that He works in us through His Spirit, that He is Lord over this world even though He is not fully present in this world. And then we start to get a very clear picture of what and who we are waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus to come again. So that's the first how that we have to understand. How this heaven becomes This eternal heaven is first and foremost by the return of the king who has ascended but will come back. So I want to read for you the very beginning of the book of Acts. So Acts is sort of book number two of a two-part series written by Luke. Luke wrote a gospel, which is basically the life of Jesus, and then he wrote Acts, which is the life of the beginning of the church. So I want to read you the very beginning because I think it's important to see how this all happens. So you can, you can read along with me here. You don't have to read out loud. Just, just follow along with your eyeballs. Okay. Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Oh, and we're going. And while they were gazing into heaven, see how that happened? It was gone, and now it's back. As they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, these were angels, and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's great. You see that? If you don't understand where Jesus went, you can't understand where he's coming from or that he's coming again in a very distinct, real way in which he went. 
I'm going to read you one more passage that's important to understanding this return of the king. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord Jesus. So here's the big idea. Passages like these and others make very clear that Jesus, physically, bodily, is going to come back to this earth to finish what he started through the cross and the resurrection. He's coming back. He's returning here. So what will this be like when Jesus returns? If you've been in the church, you've maybe thought about this, and maybe this is new to you, and you're wondering, well, what does this look like? What does this mean? Well, will he literally be flying in on the clouds? Maybe. I used to think this. And if it happens that way, that's okay. But I think maybe it might be a little bit different than that. Maybe this is just a picture not meant to be read literally, but maybe it is. When we get into some of these questions, I think it's very, very important uh, for me to say this. We're not sure. Uh, If you think back a few sermons ago, we talked about figurative language. And sometimes it's hard to know what is meant to be taken literally as this is a picture of what will happen or figuratively. I don't know. And this is not something to divide over. Maybe, maybe you know people that might have a different view than I espouse today. That's okay. Definitely not something to get too worked up about. N.T. Wright says this about this kind of language. He says, All Christian language about the future is like a set of signposts pointing into the mist. Signposts don't usually provide photographs of what you will find but that doesn't mean they are not pointing in the right direction. Took Grayson to Red Robin for his second birthday on Wednesday. And uh, they have a great kids menu with pictures of what you'll, what you'll receive. And it was very nice to just see what the food was going to look like. Now, it wasn't exactly the same as the picture. It never quite is. But it's nice to have a picture. Maybe that's what we're getting here, is a red robin menu. Maybe we're getting more just like an arrow pointing us in the right direction. It's hard to know. In this instance, this this 1 Thessalonians passage, which is where we get a lot of the imagery of, of Jesus coming in on the clouds, it might actually be a little bit different than we originally uh, intended, or maybe you thought. I think actually what's happening here is Paul is using mixed metaphors to describe the return of Jesus, to show how it both fulfills Old Testament prophecy, how it shows the lordship of King Jesus, and also how it describes something that's very common and understandable to the first century Greco-Roman world. And so he's going to use, I think, three distinct related stories mashed together to help us identify, to point us in the right direction of what this might be like. So let me tell you about these three stories The first story that I think Paul is drawing in here that his Jewish audience would have really understood is the story of Moses. In the Old Testament, Moses goes up into the mountain to receive the word of God, the law, and then Moses comes back down the mountain after an extended period of time 
and it says that there are trumpets. It says that there is a loud voice from heaven. And then Moses appears, descending down the mountain, out of the clouds that surround the mountain, to come and see what the people of God have been doing in his absence. You see that? You see the same imagery. So the Jewish people would have understood this imagery. The second story that I think Paul is pointing eyes to is a passage in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, it's prophesied that the Son of Man will come in the clouds and will actually lift God's people up with Him to be removed from the pain, the suffering, and the persecution that have come upon the people of God from the surrounding nations. And God will lift His people up and they will sit with God in His glory, separated from their pagan enemies who once ruled over them. This is a picture of, of, of the Son of Man rescuing them from persecution. You see, you see the imagery here? Now the third story, which would have been very understandable to the Greeks, those who are Roman citizens in particular, they would have understood this third story that I think the Apostle Paul is pointing to through this passage. And that is that when an emperor who was usually called Lord, came into or visited a colony or a province that was a part of his empire, this is what would happen. The people of the city would hear that he was coming. They would see him off in the distance coming. And you know what they would do? They wouldn't wait for him to come all the way into the city. They would run out and meet him where he was at and then would escort him into his city, into their colony. They would follow him in as he came and sat on the throne of that place. And actually, one of the words that's, that, that Paul often uses, it's a Greek word, parousia, which literally is a word that was often used in the same context, of the Lord, Caesar, coming into one of his colonies. I think Paul is actually using political parody to say, you think Caesar is Lord, but the true Lord, the one who even now rules from heaven, will come down to this earth and his people, his citizens, the people of God, the people who cry out, Jesus is Lord, they will meet him when he comes and bring him in to this place, to this colony. Of heaven. You see, those three pictures, I think, are being explained here in this passage. And so, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. I'm not going to be sort of distraught if it is him coming out of the clouds. But I also don't want to miss it if he's not. If he appears in the same way that he left. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and John 3, 2, it says this. Now, little children, abide in me so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And what's interesting and why this isn't important is that 
there's, there's a couple words that are used in the New Testament about, about Jesus' return. And one of those words I already shared is often translated his coming. And we usually think of that as his coming in the clouds. But there's also another word that's often used, and that's the word that you see here again and again, which is when he appears. And so don't be surprised if when Jesus comes back, it's maybe not exactly how you pictured it. Because the first time he came, it was not exactly how the people of Israel pictured that it would be. So I don't want us to miss it. He may appear and we shall see him as he is. And we shall go and we'll meet him and we will come with him into his city where he will sit on the throne and reign. But that's how it will begin. Jesus coming back. The king will return. Now the second thing that's going to happen is what we might call the millennial reign. Okay? Six times in Revelation chapter 20, it uses this term which can literally be translated a thousand years. And there's been traditionally over the years within Christianity three interpretations on what this millennial will be. I'm going to briefly talk about them just so that you kind of know because maybe you've never heard this stuff. But I want you to, to at least have the language. Again, this is not something to divide about. It's not something to argue about. I mean, we can discuss it because it's in the Bible and we want to understand to the best that we can what this might be like, but it's definitely not something to divide over. And it often has been, unfortunately. The first view that's really almost not held at all anymore is called postmillennialism. And this is the view that Jesus will not come back until the church has sort of reigned for a long period of time, maybe a thousand years, where they have sort of created this utopia on earth as the church has sort of converted all peoples, fixed all the ills, and then after, post that long period of time, that millennium, Jesus will return and begin heaven, the reign. Again, this is not a very popular view now because we sort of see doesn't seem to be working. <laughs> We don't seem to be creating a utopia. In fact, the 20th century was the most violent, murderous century in all of human history. So, that one's, you're not going to find many people that hold that. Now, the, the, the last two, there's a lot of great people that hold these, a lot of people that I respect, a lot of people um, that I'm in close community with and relationship with. The last two are a lot more viable. Uh, the first I'll say is called amillennialism. Awe meaning no millennium. And really this view is saying when Jesus comes back, he will immediately judge the world and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Those things almost happen at the same time. So Jesus comes back, judgment, and we'll talk about that in a second, and then new heavens and new earth. Ah, millennial. Basically, Whatever's happening now, all the times the Bible talks about it, that's sort of the millennial, but not really, okay? The second, or the, the third option here is called premillennialism. This option says, we've got earth now, then Jesus will return, then he will reign on this earth for a thousand years, or maybe a long period of time, and then he will judge and then usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Does that make sense? 
So that's why they call it premillennialism, because he will come and then the millennium will happen. Okay. Now you're saying, I wonder what <laughs> Dave thinks. I'll tell you this. I have an expectation. I have an expectation. And I call it an expectation because it's very, almost impossible to live life not thinking about, I think this is how it might go. This is how I expect it to go. But again, I will not be disappointed or surprised if my expectation is incorrect. And I don't think any of us should be surprised or disappointed. Because however God wants to do it, he can do it that way. Which is to say, I am not dogmatic about my expectation. And my expectation is that Jesus will come back, he will reign on this earth for a thousand years or a long period of time, and then he will judge the living and the dead, and then he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So my expectation is a pre-millennial expectation. But if that's not your expectation, that's okay. That's okay. That's all I'm going to say about that. But I believe that it's important to understand the how. And that millennium is going to come after a time of tribulation that the Bible talks about. So don't expect it to get better before it gets worse. I think that's important to understand too. So how? The return of the king. How? A millennial reign. How and where? I believe it will be in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Now let me, let me explain this. This is important. Where is Jerusalem? It's on this earth, right? And where is this earth? It's in this cosmos, okay? So where is heaven? Well, heaven is a complex <laughs> answer. We kind of explained it last week. There's kind of two parts to this answer of where will heaven be. Right now, at least, heaven is not an available destination on Expedia. You can't search for it, buy a plane ticket, and go there. You know, t believe it or not, you cannot even deliver an Amazon package to that zip code. They'll figure it out, maybe. I don't think so. There's no Airbnbs, so you might as well go to Denver. You can't get there by just creating a spaceship and, and flying there. Because heaven right now is, is not just another place in this cosmos, it's in another dimension. We talked about that a little bit last week. But the second part of the answer is that the future and final and eternal heaven will be here. You will be able to deliver an Amazon package to it. So if you want to pre-order something, send it to me in a thousand years or so, I believe it'll get there. We'll see how the internet does. <laughs> but uh, maybe one way to help you understand this is to think about, have you, is it, who's seen the movie Interstellar? Have you seen this movie? Okay, good. Okay, Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. Okay, <laughs> love that guy. Interstellar almost gets it right. It gets it half right and half wrong because it's right in the fact that, <laughs> in a sense, okay, when Matthew McConaughey enters the black hole, he enters another dimension in which, right, he is able to interact in a way with the world now, right? He sends a message to his daughter, he pounds on the bookcase, and he sends her a message. And it's a message of salvation, right? So in a sense, that's actually pretty good theology of 
heaven now is like this other dimension that is right next to, it's paralleled to this earth. And so Jesus can send messages. He sends angels. It's not so far away that it takes him a thousand years to get here. It's right there, and he can come here, and he can rule this earth even now, but we cannot go there. Now, that's where it gets it right. Where it gets it wrong, the message that he sends is how to, to, through mathematics, defeat gravity in order to create a spaceship that can take all of humanity away into the solar system to go find a new earth to inhabit because this earth is dying. Yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, go, it's a great movie. You should go watch it. Yeah, okay. That's not true, right? You see how it's, that's not right. The where of heaven is not some planet far off and we all have to get in a spaceship and go there and Jesus will be the bus driver and he'll get us there. That is not heaven. Heaven will be right here in this place. And I believe that the right here on this earth will center around the city of Jerusalem. Okay? That is where Jesus will go and he will reign and he will begin to set up his kingdom right there in that old town called Jerusalem. In the nation of Israel. In the city of God, right there. This has always been the Old Testament prediction and the hope that God would come and restore Israel and would set up His eternal reign right in Jerusalem. And I believe that's the New Testament prediction and hope as well. And I think my expectation is that will be the case. So Jesus will return. He will set up shop in Jerusalem right here on this earth. And what will He do? This is the fourth how. The next thing Jesus will do after either a long reign where he gives more and more people a chance to come and follow him, or it'll happen right away, I'm not sure, but the next thing that will come will be judgment. Judgment. Now the word judgment, probably for you, and it does for me, carries this negative overtones, right? We sort of, we cringe when we say judgment. I thought God was about love. Well, God's coming, God's judgment of sin and death and evil and the curse, that's actually, and and we see this throughout the Bible, that's actually very, very good news. That's not something to cringe at. It should be celebrated and longed for. The Bible says in, in the Psalms that when this happens, people will shout for joy. Even the trees of the field will clap their hands. The whole world is waiting for this moment for judgment. Now, now this shouldn't be so hard to understand for us, right? Because we long for judgment. We've judged in the past things like slavery and found it wanting. We judge child abusers and find them guilty. We judge genocide and find it outrageous. In a world of systematic injustice, where there's bullying and violence and arrogance and oppression, the thought that there's coming a day when the wicked are firmly put into their place, when the poor and weak are brought up, that's the best news there can be. 
This is exactly what is promised in order for earth to become heaven. It must be judged by the judge, Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples that all peoples will be raised from the grave and will stand before King Jesus. I believe it will be in Jerusalem. And their lives will be laid before them. And Jesus will judge. Let me show you where he says that. John chapter 5. He tells his disciples this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear the voice and come out, those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Bible is very clear. We need judgment. I've shared this illustration before. I'll share it again. Maybe it's helpful. Sometimes in my house, I leave the dishes out, sometimes, and sometimes I leave cups out and silverware. Ask Chris and Katie. Sometimes this happens. Even sometimes I leave clothing, unmentionables on the bathroom floor. And things get a little dicey in there, you know? (laughs) It's a bit of a mess. But there always comes a time, and it's usually my wife, And it's often when we're preparing the house to invite guests into it that out of love, not just for me, not usually for me, but for our visitors, for our company that we've invited in, that she, sometimes I, will enact judgment upon our house. She will judge my mess and she will remove it. And it will no longer be a mess. And her desire for no dirty dishes, her desire for no clothes on the floor, it's not because she's mean-spirited. It's because she loves those people that she's inviting in. That's exactly what Jesus is going to have to do. Because of his great love for us, he cannot leave this earth in which he wants to dwell and invite us into eternal, everlasting company with him. He cannot leave this place unheavenly. He can't leave it unclean or unhealthy for those guests that he's invited. And so he will have to, at some point, enact judgment. Now, I say this to my wife, I'm just waiting. I want every dish to have the chance at salvation. So I'm waiting to clean the dishes in the sink. Just giving them a chance to clean up. Bad analogy, but that's my excuse. But that's why Jesus is waiting. He actually wants us to have a chance to cry out to him for grace and mercy that we might become clean and that we might become guests invited into the party. And so he waits, but there's coming a day when he must judge clean house, and prepare the new heavens and new earth as he's promised. And he'll kick everybody out who does not want to be a part of his kingdom, including Satan, that old dragon, all the fallen angels who have rebelled against him, and any human being who chooses themselves over Jesus. It's coming. It's how we get heaven. 
The next how, the final how, is resurrection of all creation. Resurrection of all creation. How will this happen? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know exactly how this will happen. But just like Jesus rose from the grave, He will resurrect all things. He will put all things back together more brilliantly than they even were originally. They will become new creation. And they will be something like the old, but they'll also be new. And we've talked about this in previous sermons. You could think of it like this. It's like a caterpillar who becomes a butterfly. When the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, in a sense, the caterpillar has died. It has passed away. And something new, the butterfly, has come. But it's not completely new. In some sense, the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. In some way, that's what will happen to all of creation. Not just to human beings. We will be given new resurrected bodies. But all things, all creation, will be remade by Jesus. Now this is an interesting thought. Does this happen instantaneously? Or does he create over time as he did in Genesis? And do we watch him create? Again, I don't know. Whether it happens in a moment or it happens over a period of time, I do believe we will have a front row seat to watch God's creative, recreative power. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that fireworks show as God remakes all things? The bottom line is this. King Jesus will return. He will set up His reign in His kingdom, I believe from Jerusalem, until He judges the living and the dead and He separates all unholiness from His kingdom and He ushers in this new earth, this new creation, the eternal heaven, transforming everything by His goodness and His mercy, all things for His glory and for our good. And we will live with God forever. That is how it will happen. Generally. Now, how does that understanding, right? Because we've always said thinking about heaven is not just daydreaming. It actually affects how we live here and now. And I want to propose to you that the main way this understanding of how heaven becomes, how heaven becomes, which is really how earth becomes heaven, actually will give us something that I want to call a theology of proximity. This is so important. It's the reason that I wanted to study heaven. Because what we realize is that the first fruits of heaven actually come right now. They come out of this community, out of the people of God. The first fruits of heaven can happen right now, even living in Seattle. We are the heavenly body of Christ. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem, even though we are residents of Seattle. So we don't have to leave this city, we don't have to leave this country, we don't have to leave this earth to start bringing parts of heaven's reality here and now. That's why we named the church Sideris. Sideris literally means heavenly body. It's a Latin word. We are the heavenly body of Christ who gets to bring in part heaven here to Seattle, Washington. So so let me say this. So important to know this. This place, this city, this neighborhood is not doomed. It's destined 
for greatness. Let me say that again. This place is not doomed, but it's destined for the glory of God to perfectly dwell here. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible tells us. And so we get to be a part of. God's plan, for some reason, is that we, as His people, would get to bring to this place heaven now. By the way we love, by the way we create, by the way we redeem, by the way we fight for the character of heaven in this city. So when Jesus comes back, yes, Seattle will experience the fullness of this promise, but He's already here and He's already working and He's already bringing heaven to earth. We have to know that or else we will totally miss this opportunity to get to work with Jesus to bring heaven. So I call this the theology of proximity because I believe we we have to understand that God has planted this church in this city. He's planted us as, as people in this city for a purpose. So Seattle is a place where we are called to love. Wallingford is a place we are called to love. This street or the street that you live on is a place that you are called to love. Your apartment complex is a place you are called to love. And this love must come or can only come if you expect that God's desire is to redeem it. Is if you expect God's desire is to redeem every person. That God's desire is to redeem every plant, every tree, every animal. He wants to redeem it all. And if you don't expect that, you will never work for it. So, so if in my marriage, I do not expect it to last, that I expect divorce, that I do not expect that God wants me to love Allie for the rest of my life, if I don't believe that in my heart and in my head, I will at some point give up. But if I believe that if I expect that God desires for me to love this woman until death do us part, then I will be able to love her the best that I can. Not perfectly, but the best that I can. But I must expect that that is God's plan for us. I believe God's plan. You have to expect that he wants to save everyone that you encounter. Now, will he? We don't know. But we know that's his desire. The same is true for our cities, our neighborhoods, our streets. We must believe this. This is God's desire. This is what he's told us he wants to do. And so if we do this well, we'll develop a theology of city. We'll say this city is not doomed. It's destined to be filled with the glory of God, one way or another, through the church in part and when Jesus comes and puts it all back together. Isn't that good news? Sometimes it's hard to believe, but it's true. That is his destiny for Seattle. We also need to have a theology of authority. And this is, this is what I mean. That in this city, if we're to work for its good, if we're to bring heaven here, we have to understand that that doesn't just come by us usurping power. Because the Bible tells us that, that God has put people in authority over this city, over this country. He's put them there. And our job as Christians, as citizens of heaven, is to work with the local governments, mayors, police chiefs, principals of the school. We work with them to bring God's kingdom. God will fulfill His purposes through people that don't even know Him. That's just what God tells us He does. So we need to learn how to ask questions. Ask our mayor. Ask our administrators. 
Ask them, what are you up to? What's your vision for our city? How do we come along and help you? It's part of a theology of proximity. One opportunity, Chris mentioned it. You can go on the app and sign up. I've already signed up to be at the the entrance table to the 5K that's happening in Fremont. Supports Family Works, which is right here in Wallingford. It's a food bank, family resources. They're already doing the work. How do we help? We went and we asked them. They said, we need volunteers. Let's crush their volunteers. Let's just be so, and, and we're not doing it for any other motive other than we just want to love our city. We're not trying to get our foot in the door. We're not trying to trick them into hearing the gospel. We just want to go serve and love our city, love our neighborhood. And then finally, we have to have a theology of work because you will spend more time working than anything else you do. Your job, your job matters. Your working is a way of bringing heaven to earth. It's not a waste of time. It's not in vain. You will work a lot. And God will use it to bring heaven to earth. If, as N.T. Wright says, we do it in faith and hope and love in the present and in obedience to our ascended Lord Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, if we do that, our work will last forever. How how that happens, I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly if the computer program you're working on will somehow be a part of the new earth. But somehow it will not be lost. It is not in vain. That's a great promise. Your work matters because this earth will be recreated. We're not taking a spaceship far away. God is coming back here to put everything right. So here's the big idea. If we have a proper perspective on heaven, it's not just some distant, far-off future thing. It begins right now. This lets us live out this theology of proximity. So I want you to ask yourself, ask a friend, why has God put you here in this place, in this city, on this street, in this apartment? What foretaste of heaven can you bring to your current proximity? Ask yourself those questions. Because we must seek to apply this power. This is the power of Easter, the power of transformation and resurrection. We must seek to apply it now to transform, to heal this present world at a macro level, abolition of slavery and apartheid, overthrowing of brutal governments and genocide, all those things. Macro level, we, we should work for that as Christians. And then on a micro level, in the details of our daily lives. We must seek personal holiness. And of course, don't be overwhelmed. There are so many things you will not be able to transform on your own. You cannot. You will not. You're only asked to lay one brick. What is that brick? You do that well, and God builds the whole structure. We do our part well, and then of course we pray. There's nothing wrong with praying for the things that we cannot control ourselves. This is incredibly important to understand the how and the where of heaven coming to earth. It's all important what we do now. But let me finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. In his final Chronicles of Narnia book, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis has, has this marvelous passage. It says this, As he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked 
to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, it's the readers, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, that's the characters in Narnia, it was only the beginning of the real story. After all, their life in this world and their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray.